week's episode of the Touch Points Podcast. I'm Matthew Carnegie, one of the pastors at East Point Bible Church, and we'll be continuing in our All Scripture mini-series, looking at the different parts of our Bibles and showing how to better read them and grow in our faith when doing so. This week, we're looking at the poetic books of the Bible. These are well-known, beautiful portions of Scripture to many, but most people don't quite know what to do with them in terms of how to understand and or apply them. My hope, then, is that by spending some time exploring what's really going on inside of them, every believer will be able to read them better, able to praise God and grow in faith. To be clear, then, in our Bibles today, the poetic books are listed consecutively as Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon, also known as the Song of Songs. I say in our Bibles today, not because the books in the Bible have changed since the New Testament was written, but because the older Hebrew ordering of the Old Testament puts these books in a different order and in a category called writings, as opposed to law and prophets, which includes several other Old Testament books we normally think of as history, such as Ruth or First and Second Chronicles. There are some interesting reasons for this that are worth your study to dig into, but for our purposes today, we're going to stick to the category we have in our Bibles today of books written entirely in Hebrew poetry, or almost entirely, such as in the case of Job. Their poetic nature means that they include some of the most beautiful writing in Scripture, but they also include the two books whose main purposes scholars tend to disagree the most about. More on that later. I should also mention that they are not the only books of the Old Testament with poetry. Almost every book in the Old Testament has at least some poetic sections, so if you understand how to handle these, you'll be better equipped to approach all the poetic passages you'll see elsewhere. But since Hebrew poetry is the defining feature of the books we're focusing on, it's important first to familiarize yourself with some basic facts about biblical poetry before studying them, or else you may end up very confused by what you read. For example, you need to take into account the fact that you are reading a translated text, so some elements of poetry will be lost in translation. You're probably used to rhymed sounds at the ends of words in most English poetry, but if you translate one of our poets into another language, you would lose that rhyming effect. Fortunately for us, though, Hebrew poetry doesn't tend to rhyme sounds. It most often rhymes ideas, which can still be captured when translated. Hebrew poetic texts may or may not be meant to be taken as a large unit, but either way, you typically read it in two or three line segments where there is usually a rhymed effect between the main ideas of each of the lines. It primarily accomplishes this in three ways, through restatement, escalation, and contrast. These poetic devices help the authors to expand and develop concepts being discussed in order to impact our hearts more deeply, so I want to give you a brief explanation of each so you know how to spot them. Restatement is a pretty easy device to figure out. Sometimes, Hebrew poetry will put two lines back-to-back that basically say the same thing, and that's on purpose. The idea is that by saying it again in a slightly different way and or by using a different metaphor, your mind will have a more complete picture of the main point of both lines. This is probably the most commonly used device in Hebrew poetry, so it's pretty easy to spot, but some good examples include Job 6.12. Is my strength the strength of stones, or is my flesh bronze? Psalm 73, 2. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. And Proverbs 23, 21. For the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe one with rags. 
In all three cases, both lines of the couplet make essentially the same point, but from a slightly different angle. Escalation is closely related to restatement in that you have two or three lines that basically make the same point, but in this case, the last line is a much bigger example that is proven by the lesser example or two before it. You see this, for example, in Job 34.17. Shall one who hates justice rule, and will you condemn the righteous mighty one? Which is saying the unrighteous shouldn't be in charge, much less criticize the righteous God who is in charge. Or how about in Matthew 7, 9 through 11, which reads, Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? I mention this last example, even though it's not from the Old Testament, let alone the poetic books, because A, it's one of the clearest examples of an escalating argument, and B, it's a great reminder that almost all the books of the Bible were written by Jewish authors, so this kind of how-much-more-so escalating logic common to their literature can be found in many places besides just poetry and is often used to ground some important theological concepts. Contrast, the last of these three devices that are so common, is another that is easy to spot. It's when the point of one line is made clearer by pointing out what its opposite would be in the next, so you get a better understanding of both and or an overarching point from looking at them together. This shows up in many places, but it's especially pervasive in Proverbs. For example, chapter 15, verse 1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. 16.2 All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. You get pictures of the power of responding prudently and the importance of objectively looking into our hearts, respectively, by creating these contrasts that make us stop and consider the relationship between them. There are numerous other examples, and they show up in some different formulas, but couplets where the second line starts with but is usually a safe bet to be a poetic contrast. So even though this kind of rhyming ideas can be maintained through translation, it's important to note what is nonetheless lost in translation, like I mentioned earlier. Some of it is primarily artistic, such as the rhythm of the poetry, which doesn't affect the overall meaning of the text, but it can account for some unusual word choices that don't have major exegetical significance. However, another artistic choice that actually is exegetically significant is the many times Hebrew texts, poetic and otherwise, like to play on words to underline important themes by picking several similar-sounding Hebrew words to draw your attention to them. Bear with me while I explain one of the more notable examples in the poetic books, which is the famous verse Job 13.15, whose first two lines are literally translated, Behold, he slays me, I will have no hope. Yet most English translations render them with the more uplifting phrase, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Why the discrepancy? It's because the written Hebrew words that mean, I will have no hope, are homonyms for, in him, I will have hope. This deliberate ambiguity is designed by the author to highlight the central point of tension in the book of Job. How will Job respond when God allows calamities in his life? 
It's being emphasized in one of his speeches by this use of wordplay that can be taken either way when read out loud in Hebrew, which, as a reminder, was the primary way Jewish people interacted with the Old Testament all the way to the invention of the printing press and often still to this day. Other times, you can find instances in the Hebrew of several words with similar spellings that draw the original audience's attention to key concepts through repeated sounds. Kind of similar to assonance and consonance in our poetry today. But again, you don't get the same effect when it's translated into English. Wordplay is a subtle but very powerful way to create emphasis that we can't really duplicate when we translate the text. It doesn't change the meaning, but it does point us to where the emphasis ought to be. Similarly, Hebrew poetry is full of other common figurative language, like metaphors and similes. Song of Solomon is almost entirely made of those. And while the devices themselves can be translated, they usually involve cultural references we don't share today. For example, it's not very flattering for someone here and now to compare a woman's hair to a flock of goats, and we're not familiar enough with the Tower of David to understand why someone chose that for comparison, but both are used to praise one's lover in Song of Solomon chapter 4. If you can't understand the references, it's hard to understand what's really being said by making them. This is why when really diving into poetic texts, you should get some outside help. As much as I would love for all Christians to learn Greek and Hebrew to better understand their Bibles, it's really the job of pastors and other Bible teachers, plus good commentaries, to have that expertise to be able to share those details that will help you not to not miss anything important. That's why I recommend, number one, holding your pastors to a high standard of biblical knowledge so they can make sure you're not missing anything important in Scripture, and number two, getting yourself at least a really solid study Bible, if not a good one-volume commentary, to help give you answers to questions like that when you run into them on your own. Now that you have some overall insight into the ins and outs of biblical poetry, I want to spend just a few moments introducing the different poetic books themselves, since there is so much variety within them. The first kind I want to discuss is wisdom literature, which in the poetic books refers to Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. These two books, as the title of the first one suggests, share proverbial wisdom, which means statements about how life works that are generally true, so a wise person should live according to them. There can certainly be exceptions to these axioms, though, but that's baked into the idea of proverbial truth. This means we should strive to live according to the wisdom of the book of Proverbs, but we shouldn't be upset with God when things don't work out the way it says they generally do. Ecclesiastes is a little trickier, though, and that's why it's one of those two books whose approach commentators disagree on the most. Generally speaking, it presents a fairly pessimistic view of life that seems to be at odds with the worldview presented in the rest of Scripture. So how are we supposed to take it? The best perspective that accounts for all of the sayings in the book is that the narrator is sharing his observations about the way life works from an earthly point of view, which is why everything seems to be futile. But that futility is supposed to point us back to pleasing God as our aim in life, which is how he closes out the book. The wisdom inside is still useful for making our way through this fallen world, but it's more of a helpful, artistic, and often poignant reminder of why we shouldn't place our hope in this life. 
The book of Job, however, uses poetry in a very different way. Its prose introduction gives us one of the deepest insights into why God allows suffering, but the bulk of the book is actually a poetic description of Job's conversations after the initial suffering, probably adapted to poetic form when they were written down. I doubt they spoke in exalted Hebrew poetry for hours when they were having this conversation, but no doubt the author is still capturing the substance of their conversation. Through this artistic rendering of a real sufferer trying to work through his trials, we see a fully fleshed out picture of what questions and struggles we have when we suffer or see another Christian suffer today, including both sympathy as well as some admonition against the pitfalls of responding poorly. So it is a must for anyone struggling with the question of how a sovereign, loving God allows suffering to spend time really chewing on Job. Song of Solomon, on the other hand, has much less consensus on how it should be used because it is the other of those two books whose main purpose is most hotly contested. It is primarily exalted poetry between lovers, and it has been held up in Jewish culture as the supreme example of romantic love. Because of the church's role as the bride of Christ, many have tried to read an allegory of that relationship back into Song of Solomon. But that lends itself to many highly speculative interpretations that can go down some frankly weird roads that are hard to justify from the text. The best way to use this book is as what it is on its face, a song exemplifying the depth of romantic love between bride and groom that we can use then to strengthen our own marriages. And then, based on the depth of that relationship, we can meditate on our even deeper relationship to Christ in light of the theological parallel. It should still take us back to worshiping Christ in a closer way, just not so directly that it creates weird implications for that relationship by ignoring the actual purpose of the text. Finally, we should spend a minute discussing the book of Psalms. There is a lot of theology packed into Psalms, but if I'm going to quickly distill how to read them on our own, I want to focus on their nature as worship music. Every one of the 150 Psalms was a song written as an act of worship in Israel. It's easy to forget since we don't have the music to go with those words anymore, but as we study them, it should deepen our own worship immensely. You see psalmists singing songs to God, praising Him for who He is, what He has done, what He has promised, and more. You also see songs to God crying out in times of need, mourning times of defeat, lamenting chastisement, calling for just punishment of the wicked, and more. There are psalms celebrating the opportunity to worship, and psalms exhorting people to treasure God's word, including the longest of the psalms, Psalm 119. There are psalms painting a picture of what the righteous king over God's people should be like and do that point to Christ. And there are psalms admitting the reality of sin and the need for forgiveness that point to us. In short, the psalms cover pretty much every angle of worship. They remind us that we shouldn't just learn all kinds of theology and how to state it. Our theology should impact our hearts at a level that gives rise to artistic expression, especially in song. We may not all be blessed with an ability to write songs to our God, but we can all sing them from our hearts when those hearts have meditated on who he is and what he's done. Well, if you've made it this far, thanks for sticking with me through this dive into the poetic books. I know most Christians are familiar with them, but I hope most of you now feel like you can get much more out of them as you study them on your own, because they are definitely meant to be read very differently than you would other parts of Scripture. They remind us that God cannot be captured by any human words, let alone simple statements of fact, 
So if we really want to get as close as we can to capturing his beauty, we need to be willing to dive into the realm of the artistic. It really shouldn't surprise us that the most profound ways human beings can express themselves will be used to try to better capture our God and his will for us. I pray this resonates with you and enriches your worship of our all-surpassing God. Have a great week in the grace and peace of Jesus Christ. 